Last Lord's Day, we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through the first part of verse 9, where we learned about how the Thessalonian Christians were proven examples, uh, proven leaders, uh, types or models of gospel grace. And I used the term gospel grace because, as we all know, the gospel is the good news that Jesus of Nazareth, the divine Son of God, came from heaven to die upon a wooden cross so as to die for the sins of everyone who would ever repent and believe in Him. He lived a righteous, holy life, never sinned, was perfect in His humanity. And that is, of course, how we can exchange our unrighteousness for His perfect righteousness. And I use the term gospel grace and the grace portion of that term because, again, as we know and have been taught, no one can respond to such good news of salvation in Jesus the Messiah unless God the Father graciously gives us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of our fallen, sinful, and wicked condition of utter lostness. Until we understand that we have offended a holy God because of our sin and then come to Him in repentance and faith, which in and of themselves are gifts of God's grace given to us, seeking His forgiveness for our sin and asking Him for His mercy. That's, that's what we must do. Otherwise, we will be lost forever and spend our eternity without Christ that's gospel grace. As we learned that last time from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, these pagan people, these Gentiles in Thessalonica, with, of course, um, mostly these Gentiles, but some Jews, of course, uh, God-fearers among them, uh, we saw this gospel grace through the lips of Paul, sharing it with the Thessalonians, Silvanus and Timothy, of course, as well, and this this gospel grace then took hold of the Thessalonians in such a way that they became those gospelers, those heralds. The gospel grace was on their lips as they embraced the cross, as they embraced salvation. And they began witnessing to others. And the Lord began immediately working in their lives to sanctify them and uh, to bring them to a place of progressive growth in Christ. And we learned that last time. And you remember I said to you that in the first century, if this is true of the Thessalonians, this also must be true of us. We must have gospel grace come upon our lips toward others from those who shared that gospel with us. And we also ought to have gospel uh, gracious lives working in and through us to conform us to the person of Christ. And if we do that, then we are following in the long legacy of those evangelists who throughout the centuries have shared such a gospel and now we receive such a gospel and we are given gospel grace too. And what does the Apostle Paul think and believe and pray for regarding these Thessalonians? This is, this is an amazing thing that Paul has done to to suffer and to be persecuted and yet to take the gospel 
to all those places where God had called him to go. Maybe as we begin this morning, I want you to go back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, and I want you to see again some of the history that is behind what we're studying here in 1 Thessalonians. It starts, of course, with a call, and that call was in a very strange and unique way, at least uh, for our tastes, but it was a gospel call from the Lord Jesus to Paul to come to these Thessalonians. You might not have read this before, but this is an amazing story. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. This is just background as we get into our study this morning. Acts 16, 6. And they, speaking, of course, of Paul and his apostolic band, fellow messengers of the gospel, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Isn't that interesting? Most interesting. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And then this remarkable statement in verse 9 of Acts 16, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man, that's what it says, a man, a man of Macedonia was standing there. He was in this vision as Paul was seeing it. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And of course, we we know that that's including, of course, Philippi and Thessalonica. And when Paul had seen the vision, according to verse 10 of this historical section of Luke's account, immediately, he says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. Remember, we studied that great book not too long ago. A leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She didn't know Jesus, of course, but she was worshiping God, it says. And then the Bible tells us so plainly here, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Remember last time we talked and we said there has to be a gospel word. There has to be a communication about the truth of the cross. And this is what Paul did. But notice, the Lord opened her heart to listen to what Paul was saying. In other words, she believed. Verse 15, and after she was baptized and her household as well, that means all of those who believed along with her, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is a, an amazing story. And of course, as they continued to gospelize, as they continued to give this gospel in these areas of Macedonia, 
there was great persecution. As we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. He was annoyed because, of course, she wasn't saying that in a God-honoring way. She was trying to be a nuisance. She was trying to deflect the message of the gospel and to try to get people to not hear Paul because she was going on and on and on, even though, of course, what she was saying would have been true as far as it went. Verse 19, but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, you see, that's the real motive. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the, upper, uh, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And you know what happens. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because, of course, he thinks I was not able to keep these prisoners and I took an oath and now my own life is going to be taken because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Boy, wouldn't that have been a shock. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He recognized that these were holy men. They had gospel grace working through their lives, and and now they're going to be witnessing to him. And so gospel grace is going to be on their lips. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord. Remember last week we talked about the word of the Lord. It was sounding forth. Well, here's Paul sounding forth the word of the Lord to this Philippian jailer and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is the jailer, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. In other words, all who could hear and believe this same gospel message repented and believed. Then he brought them into his house and set foot before them, set food before them, I should say, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Remember the seller of purple, the one whom the Lord opened her heart? 
And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And where did they depart? Chapter 17 says, to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And I read that to you last time, didn't I? And this is Paul going from Philippi now to Thessalonica. This is, this is an amazing story. And when all of this is going on, gospel grace has come upon the lips of Paul. Even he who had persecuted the church, now he is one who is proclaiming Jesus. So what does he do? He goes to Thessalonica, and it says that he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he preached, and he told them, just as we saw last time, that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. And when they try to do all they can to disrupt and deflect and make them suffer and threaten them, they are counted worthy to suffer for the gospel's sake. And this is, this is amazing. This is tremendous. You say, well, how did they suffer? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. They had preached the gospel for these weeks, and probably only just a few short weeks. Three weeks, we're told, of Paul being in the synagogues, preaching the gospel to Jews, the gospel of Jesus. And apparently, maybe only a few weeks later, if that, he's going to the Gentiles now, the the Thessalonians uh, who were a part of the pagan portion of their community, not the Jews. And they were flogged. They were beaten. They were ripped away from these Thessalonians just after they'd share the gospel with them. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In other words, he'd communicated the gospel to them. They'd embraced the gospel. And then Paul is ripped away from them. His own life is going to be taken. And so they, they whisk him away along with some of the others. And Paul says, I long to be with you. You might even hear Paul saying something like this. That's too short. That's, that's too short a time frame. I need to be with them now that they've received the gospel and I need to build them up in the faith. And Lord, I, I, I want to be with them. And he tried and Satan had some kind of hindering mechanism that, that kept Paul from it, of course, in the will of the Lord. But Paul is now having his heart ripped out of his chest. He wants to see them. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? Verse 24, You are our glory and joy. And then verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. That's 
That's according to Acts 17, what what they had to do. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. In other words, if Paul couldn't get there, maybe he could send Timothy, and Timothy might be able to come among them, and he did. He says in verse 3 that no one be moved by these afflictions, referring to his hope that the Thessalonians wouldn't be sidetracked from the gospel because of these serious afflictions that they're experiencing. He says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, destined for these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent you to learn, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Oh, but the joy in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. Oh, I'm encouraged. Your faith is strong. We haven't labored over you in vain. And he says in verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Wow, what what a pathos in his heart and through his pen. This is this is an amazing thing. And so what does Paul tell them? Well, I'm grateful that you're chosen. Doesn't he say that in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. God has elected you. God has given you salvation. You remember we talked last time about this great doctrine of justification, Christ's righteousness for my unrighteousness, Christ living His perfect life so as to exchange with my sinful, wicked, wretched life, my terrible life for Christ's perfect life, His his death on the cross, the death that I deserve, the death that I should have, Christ took it upon Himself. Paul Paul is telling the Thessalonians here in chapter 1 that you're going to suffer and that you've been involved in much affliction, according to verse 6. But you had the joy of the Holy Spirit, so much so that even in your affliction, you became an example to all the believers in the Macedonian region. That includes even the Philippians. And in Achaia, that also includes the Corinthians. Uh, The word of the Lord, the message sounded forth. It was like a mighty wind. And that gospel word went to all of these regions. And the faith of the, the Thessalonians was far and wide known among this people group, and, and they, are, they are serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. And Paul is overjoyed. Timothy's brought back this word, and he's so encouraged. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're our glory. You're our joy. Boy, I couldn't take it. And then Timothy comes back, tells me how you're doing, and now Paul pins this letter. And when he does, 
right here in the beginning, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, which we studied in detail last time. Paul says, there's one other thing I want to tell you. There's one other thing I want to write you as I begin my letter. And this is what he says. He says, halfway through verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had with you, and now this, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, these are great words. Mighty truth. And you know, beloved, it's very, very easy in verses 9 and 10 to see three important elements, three components to this conversion story of the Thessalonians. Paul just lays it out in very obvious points, three of them, and here's the first one. Here's the first element. I've titled the message today, what does it mean to be converted to Christ? What does it mean to be converted to Christ? Using as a backdrop, uh, as a platform to answer that question, what Paul is saying about the Thessalonian believers. And here's the first element or component of those three, and it is this. They were turning to God from idols. Turning to God from idols. Look back again at the latter part of verse 9. He says, how you turned to God from idols. That's the first element or the first component of conversion. If you want to ask the question, how does someone become converted to Jesus Christ? The first and, and incredibly important element or component of the answer to that question is this, turning, turning. It's bound up in this word turn, this idea of conversion to Christ. This, by the way, is not the normal word that maybe one might use or, or see here in the Greek text, metanoia. That means to, to change your mind, which then ultimately leads to a change of behavior. It's like it. It's related. It's kind of like a kissing cousin. It's, it's the word epistrepho, epistrepho. And it's the idea, strepho, to turn, and the epi that's affixed to the front of it is adding a, a major emphasis. And so it's a, a real turning, a genuine turning, a, a real and genuine and forceful turning. So he says, you are to turn to God from idols. That's what it means to be converted to Jesus Christ. That's what he told the Thessalonians about themselves, this turning is this. It's a, it's a change of mind, uh, uh, a change of mind that leads to a course of action uh, to turn, to turn back, to, to bring back, to, to cause to change. That's what it means. That's actually where we might get the idea of conversion, to convert, to turn away a decisive turn around, to turn away from idols to God. And that's what the Thessalonians were turning from, idols. 
you know, this is pagan territory. This is a Gentile land. There were some Jews, again, of course, because Paul preached, as was his custom, three Sabbaths in the synagogue, so they were there too. But the predominant land, the predominant area of this region was Gentile land, Gentile region. And he says, you were serving your idol gods, gods with a small g. But what what you did was that the gospel grace of God came upon my lips to yours and it changed your lives so that now gospel grace is on your lips so that you could speak to others so their lives could change by gospel grace so that they could stop serving idols to serve the living and true God. This idea of turn or convert, I mean, the world doesn't like it. Oh, you're one of those who talk about conversion. You, you, you like the word uh, uh, convert. You're trying to convert me. Well, this is, this is one place where the Bible teaches this very thing, to make a decisive break with your old ways, your old worship of life or yourself or your money or sex or power or influence, whatever your idol may be in this day and hour, it's a decisive break from that toward the gospel. You're turning away from your sin, away from your life, away from your lifestyle, away from your idols, and you're turning to God, to the true gospel. This is a turning. This is why the Bible repeatedly talks about this turning and that you must turn to God from your own old way of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this very word, epistrepho, is used, or a form of that word, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, the veil being unbelief. When one turns to the Lord, when, when God, like uh, Lydia, when he opened her heart, uh, she turned from her pagan ways to serve the living and true God based on the message that Paul was giving her. The Lord opened her heart. She believed the, the things that Paul was teaching, and she turned from the old life in order to be a part of the new life. This is what it means to turn. And, of course, it could Go in the other direction. There are those who, who might profess some kind of faith in Christ, but it's not real. It's not genuine. Uh, there wasn't a true decisive break from their sin or maybe even their religious devotion. They, they told everyone that they were serving Jesus. They, they told them that they were living in the power of the Spirit, but it was a sham. It wasn't true. And and there can be a kind of reversal of such a turn where it really wasn't a true bona fide turn in the first place. It was actually that which was a sham, and then they turned back, and now they're an apostate. Galatians chapter 4, Paul's even concerned about the Galatians. He says in verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, gods with a little g. He says, but now, Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? That's the strepho word. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So, there could even be those who are apostatizing from the faith. They, they're apostates. They, they say they were a part of the church. They say they were a part of Christianity. And they turned back toward their pagan ways. And those are those even like false teachers, according to Second Peter 2, 2, where it speaks of those who go back into the pig slop of, of sin and they turn away and go back to their old ways of idolatry. But this is, this is not what the Thessalonians did. They truly turned. They were converted to Jesus Christ out of their pagan idolatry. You want to see some of those Gentiles in the book of Acts, particularly, who turned to God in that conversion sense? Look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is, this is an amazing account through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, particularly in verse 35. Acts 9, 35. This is a wonderful story. It says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, a couple of cities, saw him, the, the preaching of Peter. They listened. They, they saw this uh, bedridden man named Aeneas and that he'd been bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. Peter healed him. He said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and Peter preaches the gospel, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, saw him in his uh, miracle condition. His paralysis is gone. He's completely healed, is Aeneas. And it says, and they turned to the Lord. They were converted. They were converted to the Lord. Acts chapter 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed, this is from that Antioch uh, area and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. Acts chapter 14, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. This living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, Christianity is about a conversion a conversion from your old life to a new life to come. It's it's saying no to your old desires. It's saying no to all the sin in your life. I I find it repugnant. I I find it hideous. I find it ghastly. I I don't want this life anymore. My my eyes have been opened. The, The truth of the gospel has come into my heart. I know that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It's been shown to me so perfectly clearly that I need a Savior. And the Bible says you turn, you turn. And of course, this is a gift. This is a gift from God, just like Lydia's heart being opened, just like God granting, Acts eleven eighteen the Gentiles, the gift of repentance, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, perhaps that God would grant them repentance leading to life. Yes, it's a gift, but it is nevertheless a turn. Acts chapter 15, verse 19 it says, this is, this is a turning. Acts 15, 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn 
to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. In other words, they are to turn from some of these old ways, these old pagan ways. Acts 26, Acts 26 also speaks of this turning, and it even speaks it from from Paul's own lips, Acts 26, 20. But he declared this to O King Agrippa, first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. Here's Paul's message. Here's what I here's what I preach, here's what I teach, that they should repent and turn to God. Using both words, repent, metanoia, and turn, epistrepho, to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. You want to see an example of the demonstration of this turning from idolatry idolatry and sin from the city of Ephesus? You want to see practically what it might look like? Look back at Acts chapter 19. If you want to see what it looks like, if you want to see the fruit of repentance, You want to see the manifestation of someone turning genuinely to Christ? In Acts chapter 19, this is what happened in Ephesus. This is most amazing. Paul came there. He preached the gospel. A church was formed. Of course, we have the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. And in Acts chapter 19, this is amazing. Verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. This is when Paul is coming there. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Difference between the the two covenants, the different dispensations. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of, of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they... They were hearing new truth, and they were responding to such truth. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Verse 8 says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is that gospel grace on Paul's lips. And he began, he began teaching them. It says in verse 9, But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is the way of Christianity, uh, before the congregation. It says, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this he continued for two years, the Bible says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But as... Paul continued to preach this gospel. Gospel grace was on his lips. They could see from his life that he was having the the aroma of gospel grace throughout his, his life, his works, his ministry, and that didn't set well with the leaders in Ephesus. Verse 21, now after these things, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. So here we are, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, there was, there was again, this great opposition. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's the Greek god Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. They were being converted, he's saying, saying that gods, with a small g, made with hands are not gods. And that's what Paul told them. There's there's only one true God, not these little idol gods that you've made by your own hands. Verse 27, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, Diana, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. See, they were just in it for the commerce, for the produce, for the money. And verse 28 says, And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Why? Because they would, they would ravagely and savagely beat him and potentially kill him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and some another. Uh, it was just a, a madhouse, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, monitoring with his hand, in other words, he made a motion with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Just chaos. And when the town clerk had queried the, quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis, Diana, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are opened and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, so what's going on? Well, of course. Ephesus is being changed. People are being converted. So what do they do? Well, you know what they did? These Ephesian believers, because they were converted, they brought all of their black magic, their books and their potions, and all of the things that they had served and worshipped and used before. And what did they do? They piled them all up in the middle of the marketplace in the center of the city, and they burned them. Yes, that's right. They burned them. They, they were truly converted. You see, they, they made a decisive break with their own life. That's exactly what they did. 
They said no to these things anymore. They wouldn't have it. They were truly converted. What about you? Are you truly converted to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your wicked ways? You see, there aren't really any other gods. There's only one God, capital G, God the Father, Yahweh, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the powerful Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's the only true God there is. That's how you have to turn. That's where you must turn. You can only turn from a silly, vapid life of sin and wickedness, no matter what your idols are, the idol of you, the idol of money, the idol of sex, the idol of power, whatever it may be. And for them, they had black magic and potions and, and, and curses and incantations and spirits and all kinds of things that needed to be turned from, and they did. Not all of them, of course, but church started there. Powerful church in Ephesus. Mighty church. Even Timothy was a pastor there among them. They turned. They turned. You see, if you go back in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is, this is precisely what Paul is telling them about who they are. They are turning to God. Turning to God. That's the first element in conversion, turning to God. That's what's said here, how you turned to God from idols. And here's a second component, serving. We go from turning to serving. Notice what it says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve for the purpose of serving for the very reason that having turned from these dead idols, you now, in your conversion, can serve the living and true God. The living and true God. This is, this is how your conversion takes place. It goes from the negative, turning from your sin, from your idolatry, from your wickedness, to serve positively the living and true God. There's no other God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, there's no, there's no other God than Yahweh. There's, there would be gods with small g's, and, and people sort of carve out images of their supposed gods that they worship. We might say today in our context, uh, money, power, sex, notoriety, influence, all of those who believe that we are the upstanding and the morally righteous and the influential and the benevolent and those who would see us as philanthropists or we're those who have this fine reputation and it's probably none other than the serving of self, the serving of me, not the God of the universe, not the God who created the heavens and the earth, not, not the God who is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true God, the true and living God. So turning and serving. You see, the Apostle Paul made it very, very clear in the book of Romans, very, very clear in Romans chapter 6, that the only kind of serving 
is either the serving of yourself and your Adamic nature, your sin in Adam, or the serving of Jesus Christ. There's, there's nothing else. And if you're saying that you're upright and that you're an upstanding citizen and that you're a good person and that you do good deeds and that you're philanthropic and that you are someone who is to be affirmed and to be applauded, and yet if you're not serving Jesus Christ, you're serving yourself. You're serving the God of self. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it's very clear. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves or servants. You are slaves of the ones whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, and now you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, the standard of Christianity, the standard of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, now you've been set free from sin. You've been set free from the sin of self and all that it entails. And you've become now slaves of righteousness. See, this the sin of our hearts is a sin of slavery. Slavery to ourself, to our own appetites, our lusts, our desires, our would-be gods. And we must be converted, negatively turning from our sin and positively now serving the only one and true God, the living one, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what, isn't that what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer about what it means to serve and what is eternal life and how can I gain eternal life? And, and, and what is it? He says in John 17, 3, these words, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus speaking of and to the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. There's no, no way to have eternal life apart from this, to know the only true God, the living one, the Father from all eternity, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the truth of Christianity. You can't, you can't serve anything else or anyone else and ever hope to be in a right relationship with God unless you're serving the living and true God in the person of Jesus Christ might not be nowhere else more succinctly stated than 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him, we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then this in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. How do you keep yourself from idols? by serving the living and true God. So I ask you, whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? This is one of the key elements. This is one of the key components in what it means to be converted, to do an assessment of whom you and I are serving. So turning and serving and finally waiting, waiting. Look at verse 10. Here's what the Thessalonians were doing. And to wait 
for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers or rescues us from the wrath to come. Isn't this an amazing statement here in verses 9 and 10? This is This is conversion. This is Christianity. This is repentance. This is what it means to have a relationship with God, to turn to God from your idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Turning, serving, waiting. You say, waiting? Doesn't that sound a bit passive? Waiting like like not doing anything, waiting? No, it's talking about the waiting of an expectant hope, of the blessed hope, of the return of Jesus Christ, awaiting in the sense of grateful expectation, of uh, eager anticipation. That's what this means. And I, I love the way it's stated here. Notice the four mentions of the person of Christ to wait for His Son from heaven. This is God's Son, whom He, the Father, raised from the dead, the resurrected one. That's the second. Third, Jesus who delivers, or Jesus who rescues us. And then sovereign from the wrath to come. He's going to deliver us because He's the sovereign Lord who will rescue us from the wrath to come. Do you see this? To wait for His Son, the resurrected one, Jesus, speaking of His humanity, and the Sovereign who rescues us from the wrath to come. Do you know the little symbol of the fish that Christians used to use in the first centuries of Christianity, ichthus? Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. This is, this is what's being affirmed here. This is what Christians are doing. We're, we're eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons. That's what Romans 8 tells us. We're, we're eagerly awaiting. We're in eager anticipation of Jesus coming back in His second coming glory to deliver us from wrath. We'll be saved from such wrath if we're in Christ and as Sovereign Lord to dispense the wrath to come for those who are unbelieving. You want to hear how Paul tells the Philippians about this very thing? He says in chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Yes, we await a Savior. And He's sovereign Lord. And He's going to come with wrath. The book of Revelation tells us that, chapter 19, very clearly. Lord of lords, King of kings, We eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a conversion anthem. This is a conversion hymn. We await our Savior. We're turning from sin. We're turning from idol worship 
to the worship of the living and true God. He's not dead like these idols. He's alive. Jesus Christ has been resurrected. It's very clearly stated for us here that he has been raised from the dead by the Father. And we are going to one day await the very coming of the sovereign Lord who will dispense wrath upon unbelievers and who will gather all believers to himself and will give them their resurrected bodies and we will be forever with the Lord. And by the way, much of this is spelled out in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to find out about this. Oh, I ask you as we close this morning, are you in Christ? Are you converted? You see, what it means to be converted is turning, serving, and waiting. Are you converted to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your idol worship to serve the living and true God? Have you eagerly set your expectations, your hope on the blessed hope, the Son of God from heaven, whom God the Father raised from the dead, who will deliver us as believers from God the Father's wrath and who will dispense such wrath as sovereign Lord upon all those who aren't converted, who don't turn, who aren't serving Him, and who aren't in the least waiting for Him from heaven. Oh, I trust that you will, in fact, be converted to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these Thessalonians are marvelously depicted here by Paul. They're turning ones, serving ones, and waiting ones. This is, this is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of our faith. And I pray for anyone who is hearing me to ask the question, have you turned from your sin to serve the living and true God? And are you waiting for this blessed hope of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? Oh, I pray that when He comes, you will be found in Him, not having a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness by faith that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.